0: The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network.
1: So is purgatory a concept found in the Bible?
2: getting into the Word today. We are getting into
1: Scripture. We are getting into theology. And I welcome your calls, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. And and I want to give you an opportunity to call, a challenge, an opportunity, however you want to look at it. If you believe that you can demonstrate the doctrine of purgatory— that some Christians will go through a period of of purging, of of suffering in a redemptive way after death before being with the Lord forever and ever. If you believe in that concept and believe that you can demonstrate it's in the Bible as accepted by Protestants and Catholics alike, okay? So what we would call the 66 books of the Bible, not including the Apocrypha. If you believe you can make that case, give me a call, 866-866. Three 34 truth Or conversely, if you believe that you can argue for the canonicity of 2 Maccabees and why we should take the testimony of 2 Maccabees to point to purgatory, you can give me a call. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. If you believe it's an unbiblical concept, why? On what basis do you feel it's unbiblical? Phone lines are Open, so oh, I don't know. A couple months back, I was asked to come on a show that I had been on before, where one brother moderates debate shows online, and I was uh, asked by a, a Catholic apologist to debate a particular subject. I forget what the subject was. It may have related to Mary or something else. But I've I don't know that I've done formal debates with Catholics over the years. I've had many, many a discussion with with Catholics over the years, friends, colleagues, strangers that I've met, the church in which I came to faith, most of the people in that church, little church, had come out of Catholicism, of Italian background, had come out of Catholicism. But I've not engaged in serious academic debates with Catholics as, say, my, my friend Dr. James White has. And it was nothing at the top of my bucket list to do. But I was then asked, how about debating purgatory? So I was very specific, if we are going to debate what we all agree on as the canon of Scripture, so the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, if we will confine the debate to that, so we're just debating what Scripture says on the subject, yeah, so the question is not church tradition, the question is not apocryphal books, the question is just Bible. I said, sure, I'll do it. So I agreed to do the debate, uh, what, two weeks ago, maybe? With William Albrecht, I guess I had been on his show, a show that he has with a colleague talking about some other issues in the past, not debating, but, but talking on areas that we had in common. In any case, um, when the debate began, because he affirmed the answer was yes, and the question was Is purgatory, purgatory biblical, I, I was completely shocked by his presentation. So it appeared there was a massive misunderstanding. Our email chain, to me, was clear. To, to my assistant was clear, to the moderator was clear, but William did not understand it as I did. So it appears there was a massive misunderstanding. Now, you, you could be cynical and say, no, no, he, he just didn't play by the rules, but I take him at his word. There was a massive misunderstanding. So he came in and spent opening argument, talking a lot about what the church fathers taught, and then getting into Second Maccabees and what Second Maccabees taught, and then using a few verses— So when it was my time, I said, all right, before we start, I need some clarification here because we actually don't have a debate otherwise. Uh, After my presentation, opening statements, he was going to question me for 20 minutes. I was going to question him for 20 minutes. So cross-examination. And I said, the debate is not what the church fathers believed. The The debate is not what's in the Apocrypha. The debate I agreed to do is what's in the Bible. Now, even if I was absolutely fluent. If I could quote every writing of every church father on every subject by memory, if I could, which I can't, if if I was fully prepared to deal with any potential verses in the Apocrypha, and it's really just one passage, and, and that was not hard. I mean, it's just one passage. I wouldn't have done it anyway, because that's not what I agreed to debate. There, there are plenty of subjects I could move over into, but that's not what we agreed to debate. Of course— I was not going to be attacked as being unprepared and so on. And, and if you go to the website, you know, it depends on what someone's perspective was in terms of how they responded to the debate. That's unfortunate because that's just misrepresentation. It had nothing to do with being unprepared. It had to do with what we agreed on in the debate. is that simple. William thought it was one thing. The moderator and I understood it was something very, very different. So all that being said, the passage in second Maccabees, uh, there are those who say that doesn't really support purgatory either because purgatory is not theoretically to to bring a wicked person into righteousness but rather to further purge a righteous person so they are fully ready to be in the presence of the Lord forever right? Whereas in the passage, there's prayer for idol worshipers and things like that. So some would even say that Second Maccabees doesn't support the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. But put that aside because that's not what the debate was. You say, but, yeah, but what about the fact that was drilled home in the debate that the church fathers are unanimous on the subject? Well, my only response to that was, aside from the fact that's not what we're debating, search for it. Take a look and see. Take a look and see whether the church fathers were unanimous. How many actually spoke about purgatory? How early was their consistent testimony of purgatory? How many said things that would be taken as saying something different? Now, here's the deal. If we could debate what the Bible says about certain verses, and then all the church fathers, every single one of them, all agreed on the subject— Every single one from the earliest, to, let's say, up to fourth, fifth centuries, they all taught it the same way. They all believed it the same way. They all held to the same thing. Then that would definitely say, well, it seems like that's the way they understood it. That's what was passed on. That, that would be an argument. But that's not the case here. Even that was thoroughly misleading. You say, well, Dr. Brown, why didn't you get into that in rebutting? Because I wasn't dealing with the church fathers. That's not what I agreed to debate. That's not the material I was going to present. But to those who wanted to take the time to study, I said this. I said, check online. Check online. Look up the sources. See how unanimous they were. At one point in the debate, William said, yeah, every church father, it's unanimous. They all interpret 1 Corinthians 3 this way. And then he clarified, it. he said, well, I'm not saying they all commented on it. Oh, interesting, interesting. So theoretically, if three out of 30 church fathers, just to throw out a number, made this comment on 1 Corinthians 3, would that be unanimous then if the other 27 didn't comment on it or other writings they they had pointed in a different direction? You see how misleading all that was. Again, I didn't rebut it. I didn't deal with it in depth because that's not what the debate was. That's not what I was focused on. And that's not what I agreed to. So again, you have to have principle. If, if you're going to get into a debate and it deviates from the topic, then, you know, I said, look, there are other things I'm happy to debate another time. If we set that up for that purpose, fine. Or, as, you know, the books of Maccabees, were they considered canonical in the early Jewish community? Were they, were they recognized universally as part of the Bible at any time in in, in, in early church history? Or, or the Second Temple Judaism, that's a separate debate. And, and the answer is no, they were never universally recognized as Scripture, and they were not part of the, the recognized Jewish canon in the ancient world. It's, but, but that, again, that's a separate debate. In point of fact, I'm quite sure, with all respect to my Catholic friends, that we can demonstrate scripturally that purgatory is not taught anywhere in the Bible. We can demonstrate it scripturally. What we agree on is canonical books of the Bible, putting aside 2 Maccabees for the moment. And again, even there, you can argue whether it teaches purgatory as Catholics hold. I can demonstrate scripturally, I believe clearly, and even unequivocally, that purgatory purgatory is not a biblical concept. Now, let me say this plainly. If it was, I'd embrace it. If if that was the case, if that's what God's Word taught, if that's what He required a further purging, a further purification— a certain suffering, uh, uh, going through fire in a certain way. If that's what our God required of some people to be with Him forever, then so be it. Whatever He says is good with me. He's wonderful. He's our heavenly Father. This would not be some doctrine to me where it would shatter everything I believe. Where, where, you know the idea that there is no God, the idea that the Bible's not true, the idea that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you know, those things would absolutely completely shatter and demolish everything that we believe or hold to and, and would, without question, be things that would destroy the, the lives that we're living. Everything would come under question. Thank God there's—thank God he is. Thank God his word is true. Thank God Jesus has risen. Those things are as certain to me as, as the chair that I'm sitting on. So, so purgatory is not one of those doctrines where if it was true, it would destroy every foundation of my spiritual life. If the Bible taught it, I'd embrace it. But the Bible doesn't teach it. And in fact, rightly understanding the blood of Jesus, rightly understanding redemption, rightly understanding justification by faith, rightly understanding the relationship that we currently have with God now, all of those things indicate plainly and clearly that purgatory is not a biblical concept. So here's, here's what we're going to do today. Let me just take a look over at our phone lines. All right, 866-342. So again, I invite you to call Catholic friends, those that believe that, that the church fathers have taught with a clear unanimous voice on this, those that want to make a case for the canonicity of 2 Maccabees, which of course would mean 1 Maccabees as well. I'm not going to bite your head off. I may differ with you, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to present your case. And if you happen to watch the debate and were sympathetic to Williams' viewpoints, by all means, give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH. But here's what we're going to do. We come back. I'm going to lay out my argument as to why purgatory is not biblical. And I believe you'll be edified. You'll be helped. You'll be encouraged. And then after that, for the rest of the show, I'll open up the phone line. So if you got a friend... Catholic apologist or someone that believes in, in purgatory and you know they'd like to weigh in on this, phone lines are open. All right. And in fact, I, w- I will give pride of place. I will give first place to those who differ with me, uh, to those who want to challenge what I'm saying or have a different point of view. This is not a hill we die on, meaning that this, this is not ultimately a matter of our standing with God, but it's an important doctrinal point for sure.
2: The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks friends for joining us on The Line of Fire,
1: 866-34-TRUTH. If you think purgatory is a biblical doctrine, by all means give us a call to demonstrate your point. Here's why I say purgatory is not biblical. Let me pull up a few notes that I used in the debate couple weeks back on this subject. First, when we understand what happens to us when we're born again, we realize that purgatory is not biblical. Because the moment you are born again through faith in the Lord Jesus, the Bible says you are justified. So you go from guilty to not guilty, from unrighteous to righteous. You are forgiven. You are set apart as holy. You become a child of God. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from death to life. Here, listen to scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The moment you were born again. Romans 5, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have access uh, into, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Ephesians 2 says this, that all of us, lived like the world at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So you are presently, spiritually speaking, seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. How is it then at death that you go backwards? How is it at death you go backwards and you have to go through some type of purgatory to be pure enough to be in his presence like that forever and ever. Whereas Ephesians tells us right now we are seated in heavenly places in Jesus. Colossians one, we've been delivered, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You are in, you are as in as you are ever going to be in, in that respect. Once you were alienated from God, also in Colossians 1, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, look at this, to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith. So if you continue in your faith, then when you die through the blood of Jesus, you will be presented before God, look at this, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. There is no purgatory. There's no need for a purgatory. There's nothing to be purged. Secondly, based on writings from the New Testament, clearly to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why Jesus tells the thief on the cross, who obviously died in his sin, died in wickedness, or died for his sin, I should say, well, it, crucifixion was, was for the worst of sinners For it wasn't even for Romans unless you committed treason otherwise it's for Jews and, and, and other foreigners it's a terrible punishment so Jesus says to him truly truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise if the thief on the cross who had no time to grow in holiness and no time to purge his life if, if he immediately goes to paradise just like in Luke 16 whether you take it as a literal account or a parable that Lazarus there goes immediately into Abraham's bosom, which is is paradise. Doesn't go through a time of purification, cleansing, purging. No, he goes straight there. What does Paul say in Philippians 1? I desire to depart and be with Jesus. That was his hope and desire. Those who have been beheaded for their faith in, in Revelation 6, they're before the throne of God saying, Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? And Paul indicates in 2 Corinthians 5 that being absent from the body means being present with the Lord. So there is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. Thirdly, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed to man once to die. And then after this, the judgment. And, And then we know that the future resurrection, there are only two options. There's resurrection to life. There's resurrection to death. There's resurrection to eternal blessing. There's resurrection to eternal damnation. There's no in-between stage. You die. You go to a place either with God or separated from God. There's the physical resurrection and then eternal judgment. That's all scripture knows. And John 5 tells us that those who believe now have passed from death to life and will not come under condemnation. So we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we've been set apart as holy, we are called to grow in holiness and grow in grace, and there will be rewards for our labor. Scripture is clear on that. But in terms of our salvation, it is through the blood of Jesus, it has been accomplished, we are growing in our sanctification, growing in our relationship with God, growing in our fruit-bearing, but as for our standing, it has been accomplished through the blood of Jesus, unless we reject him, if we don't continue in our faith, if we reject him, then he rejects us. Otherwise, he said that nobody can touch us. Nobody can take us out of his hands. And on that day, he will present us holy in his father's sight. Uh, next, think of this. When Jesus returns, there'll be presumably hundreds of millions of believers on the earth. And what will happen? We'll be transformed in a moment of time and be with the Lord forever. And the dead in Messiah will rise. And so they'll rise and precede us. Meet the Lord in the air as he descends to the earth and we'll be with him forever. So there's no purgatory there for hundreds of millions of people or maybe billions at the end of the age. When the Lord returns, what does it say? We will become like him, First John, for we will see him as he is. So we're going to be transformed. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and will be changed. There is no purgatory. And if it could happen to hundreds of millions at the end of the age, and theoretically Jesus could come at any moment in history, right? I don't mean prophetically and all that, but just theoretically we are to live in, in ready, readiness for his coming, then that's the reality. It's just like death, instantly in the presence of God. Why? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. There's no purgatory. There is no purgatory. And, and then uh, another question, where does the New Testament ever indicate that going through sufferings produces forgiveness of sins? Or, or we can grow in character for sure. We can grow in perseverance, but where is it ever connected with forgiveness of sins? It's, it's not. You would say, well, that's not what purgatory is about. Well, then why use Versus to support purgatory, they talk about forgiveness. That's another question to come to. And, and, and then look at this. Right now, because of what Jesus has done, we can enter into the holiest place of all. Let me, let me read this to you from Hebrews chapter 10. Are you ready? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, Right now, in prayer, spiritually, you can enter into the holiest place of all in intimate fellowship with God. Why is it when you die, you not have to go through some type of purging? Where is it? It's not taught, not a syllable in the New Testament. You say, yeah, but but what, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Let's take a look at that. This is the, the, the passage that's most commonly pointed to. First Corinthians chapter three, beginning verse 11. And if we get my screen up here, that would be great. There, Paul is talking about as a master builder, Paul himself as a master builder, building on the foundation of Jesus and says, now no one can lay any other foundation than what is already laid, which is Yeshua the Messiah. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. So this is judging the work. It's not a judgment on the person's salvation. And it could well be speaking of church planters, and that's who Paul's talking about. Let's just apply this to all believers who are building on the foundation of Jesus. So it says your work will become clear. It doesn't say that you are being judged here by your works that the the works are you, but rather your works will be judged. Is it explicit or not? Each one's work will become clear. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. So this is on judgment day. This is a one-time event, not a period of time, not a process. And the fire itself will test, does it say each person? No, each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. But as through fire, ah, you say it says He's going to be saved through fire. That's purgatory. No, it's not talking about purgatory. It's not talking about a purification process of the individual. Either the work will receive a reward, or all the work will be burned up. It's it, it is our works for God. Were they built in faith? Were they built in integrity? Were they built in purity? Or was it pride? Was it was it greed? Was it were there other motives in terms of what we did? Those are, the, those are the questions. This is not a matter of salvation. You say, well, why does it say he himself will be saved, but as through fire? What it's saying is that, yeah, okay, all your works are being destroyed. You're still saved. But like one going through the fire, it's an analogy. It, it goes back to, to language probably from the Old Testament, Zechariah. You have it a couple of times in the Old Testament, like a brand plucked from the fire. All right. That it's, it's just an idiom for saying, yeah, you still are saved. Uh, Peter talks about, quoting Proverbs, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what about the ungodly? So it's saying, yeah, even if the work you did for the Lord was was with wrong motive or something like that, and the, all the works burned up. Again, it's not about personal purification. Not a hint of it in the text. Not a hint of it. Either you receive a reward for the good works or the bad works are burned up. That's it. It's not a purification by fire. Zero. There's nowhere in the text. Not even hinted at. But don't worry, you're still saved. Yeah. Like one plug from the fire, but you're still saved. So to use this for purgatory is one of the most bizarre misuses of scripture I've encountered over the years. We'll be right back.
2: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us
1: on The Line of Fire. If you believe that purgatory can be supported biblically, when I say biblically, in this conversation, I mean on the books that we all agree are part of the Bible. So as Protestants and Catholics and whatever other groups there would be, that we have in common a belief in 66 books of the Bible, if you believe you can make a case for purgatory biblically, if you believe you can shoot holes in cases I've made against it, then by all means give me a call. This is not to yell at each other, get mad at each other, but to have an honest question about Scripture. 866-348-7884. Now, here's something really interesting. When arguments were made by a Catholic apologist against me a couple of weeks ago, saying that purgatory was biblical and, and all the church fathers unanimously held to it. So who were the earliest church fathers? And, and if there are Catholic friends out there listening or those that hold to purgatory and say, hey, the, the testimony of the early church is really strong. All right, so I'm just looking at a list of the earliest church fathers. So the, the very first ones, some of them would be disciples of the apostles and then others, disciples of their disciples. But, but some of the first generation ones like Polycarp, a disciple of, of John, right? So the very earliest church fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Papias of Heropolis, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of, of Lyons, or Lyons, Clement of Alexandria, Origin of Alexandria. Uh, out of those first ones, how many of them made comments supporting the idea of purgatory? Just let me know if this is your area or if this is something that you've argued. And, and if, if you can't find any of the first ones, maybe you have to go to second or third generation before quotes start coming up, what would that tell you? Tell you the least, it was not some major doctrine that was preached, or perhaps it was something that they didn't believe at all. And it came in later. Look, it's a doctrine that's easier to understand why people come up with, because you, you want to be able to do something for someone they die, right? And, and you think, well, you know, they were they were good, but not perfect, and maybe they're like in between. I mean, it's the rational mind could come up with these kinds of things, but scripture, no not in scripture. And and if you want to go to Origen, of course, Origen ultimately believes in universal reconciliation. Origen is later excommunicated for saying that everybody, even angels, Satan will ultimately be be saved, and reconciled. Just throwing things out for you to think about. We'll, we'll look at some more scripture in terms of scriptures that are used to support purgatory in a moment. Um, okay, I I don't see anybody yet who's arguing for purgatory. So I won't wait a little bit longer, give you an opportunity. But here's another verse that is used to support purgatory. Matthew chapter 5. Let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Uh, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever commits murder shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, it's a term of utter disparagement, shall be subject to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be subject to fiery Gehenna. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent while you are with him on the way. Otherwise, your opponent may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the assistant, and you'll be thrown into prison. And man, I tell you, you will never get out there until you've paid back the last penny. You say, well, where is the reference to purgatory? That's a great question. Where is the reference to purgatory? It's not there, not a hint of it. So where do they get it from? Well, the idea that Jesus is talking about a purgatory situation here where you have to stay in prison until you pay back the last penny. So let's press this analogy as we step back from the text. Number one, is purgatory about paying something back? Is that what it's about? Did you pay back every last penny you owe? Well, I think Catholic theologians would say, no, it's not about that, All right? So then it doesn't apply there. And what's the point Jesus is making? It's that's the point he's making be reconciled to your brother. It's not talking about being reconciled to God. That's not the issue. It's saying that God doesn't want your sacrifice if there's an issue with you and your brother. So let's say I you know, walk out of a store, I'm really mad at somebody because they didn't take care of me and were slow. It's like, you're an idiot. I mean, God forbid, I would ever do it, but you're an idiot. And I walk out of the store and I go from there and I, I got to hurry to get the prayer meeting on time so I can, oh Lord, I love you and worship you. God. Not a, you, you go back and make things right with that person. God's not interested in our hypocritical prayers when our hearts are not right with him because we've sinned against others. And then he's saying, look, remember the way it is, that if you don't make things right when you can, this person, the thing may escalate, right? And charges may be pressed against you and you may end up in prison. So let's say I owe you $10,000 and I keep making excuses about paying you back and I lie to you and I extort more money from you. And, I, and you say, look, Mike, I want to give you an opportunity to make it right. I want to give you an opportunity to fix this. Let's work out a payment plan. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to press charges. And I keep ignoring you. I don't respond to your calls. In fact, I extort more money from you somehow. And you're like, all right, I'm taking you to court. And now next thing, I'm put in debtor's prison. Well, in the ancient world, you could die in debtor's prison. Why? Because you can't work. In other words, you stay there until you pay the person back. Many people would die there because they could never pay it back because they couldn't work and their family couldn't come up with the adequate money. So they die in debtor's prison. So is that a possibility? You die in purgatory? And there's the, whole, the whole thing has nothing to do with purgatory. One last passage. Let, let's pull up Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we'll begin all around verse 30. And again, when, when you realize that these are verses— that are used to support purgatory in the Bible. And these are the main verses that are used. You think, okay, something is terribly, terribly wrong here with this argument. Then you have to go to 2 Maccabees, which number one is, was not received as canon in the early Jewish world and was disputed as canon in the early church for centuries, by the way, factually. But even there... It doesn't equate to purgatory the way the Catholic Church would teach it on certain levels. But I'm not even arguing that. We're just dealing with what we agree on in Scripture. So Matthew 12, actually, will start in verse 31. Jesus has said, who's not with me is against me. Who's not, who does not gather with me scatters. Uh, for this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But blasphemy against the Ruach, against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven, neither in this age nor in the one to come. What's that got to do with purgatory? Good question. Purgatory is not normally associated with forgiveness, but purging, cleansing, preparing, right? It's got nothing to do with it. You say, well, what does it mean won't be forgiven this age in the age to come? Well, one way to read it, this means ever, ever. Don't think that there's any forgiveness of not in this age, not in the age to come, forever. That could simply be what Jesus is saying. Also, it could be that he was referring to the concept that there are certain Jewish traditions that claim that, say, Manasseh was forgiven in this world, but not in the world to come. That he received forgiveness in this age, but in the age to come, he'd be forever damned or or subject to certain judgment. And Jesus is dealing with this idea of forgiveness in this world and or the world to come. And he's just saying, hey, it's not going to happen. That's a finalist. But does it have anything to do with purgatory? No. Zero. Nothing. Being honest with the text. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Quick reminder so this is a little over a half hour from now slightly over a half hour from now we will be doing an exclusive youtube chat so starting at 4 15 eastern time 4 15 eastern time on the ask dr brown youtube channel ask dr brown if you're not watching then remember you can watch our show live on youtube daily 3 to 4 pm yeah watch i know you're listening on radio or podcast but you can watch if you like nice smiles for everybody there. Um, And then make sure you subscribe and then hit, hit the bell, which reminds you of, of new videos that premiere. You can be the first to know. So 415 Eastern time. We're doing this, what on Wednesday this week, our exclusive YouTube chat where you can post any kind of question and I answer as many as I can. Um, All right, let's, let's go to the phones. We'll start In Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Henry. Thanks for holding. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
0: Hi, Doctor Brown. Hey. Um, Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you regarding this subject of
1: purgatory. Um, Yeah, hang on. Are are you are you speaking right into the phone, sir? It's a little hard to hear you.
0: I can hear me now.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's that's better. Okay.
0: Um, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to talk about purgatory uh, and in respect for even-handed even, uh, way. Uh, I just wanted to make three quick points and then maybe give a follow-up um, as far as proof, of or purgatory. Uh, number one, in Revelation 21-27, as you know, it says that nothing unclean can come into heaven. And I, I'm sure we both agree with that.
1: All right, so Henry, so let me just ask one thing. Well, Let's go point for point. Revelation 21, nothing unclean... <inaudible> 27. What does it say in Revelation 22? How do we enter heaven? What What does it specifically say? We have washed our robes, meaning we're washed in the blood. So we enter washed in the blood of Jesus. That's how we enter. So Revelation answers that question.
0: Right, but I, but I mean, I'm sure you read nothing unclean or, you know, anything, you know, that's dirty can enter heaven.
1: Right, but we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Scripture uses that exact language. We are made clean by the blood of the Lamb.
0: Okay. Also in the book of uh, Luke, you know, before I go there, you we know, also have to understand that, you know, there's we believe that there's more than just going to heaven and going to hell. We think that there's a third, you know, obviously uh, process of, you know, purging.
1: But, but where I, is it where is in the Bible? That's the question. It's
0: alluded, it's alluded to in Luke chapter 12, verse 42 to 48, where you have um, the servants. And this is a, a, a parable of the second coming when it comes to the judge and the dead. All right,
1: all right so, he, so tell, tell you what, it, it's, it's super difficult to hear, Henry. Uh, so if you've got one more passage, I want you to, I want you to give it to, to Grayson because uh, I can barely hear you, all right? Barely hear myself right now, actually, that music. There we go. So, Grayson, if he's got one more scripture, let him give it to you, and we'll have to deal with it off the air. Uh, I'll answer on the air, but not on the phones because we can barely hear you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna
2: to respond to Luke 12 in a moment. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, hey, you know
1: I I shoot straight here. Look, I've debated my friend James White and others on Calvinism, and I understand the verses that can be used for Calvinism and how, that yeah, that could sound like that, but here are verses against it, and the preponderance goes in this direction, and so I hold to this view. There are other subjects, you know, we can debate back and forth, end time issues and things like that. When it comes to debating purgatory biblically, to me, there, there's no debate. There's, it's not there. It's not there. So this was another passage that, that Henry's pointing to in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. It's, it's about Jesus returning. He, he departs. He leaves people in charge of things, and some are faithful, some aren't faithful, that's that's what's dealing with. There's no purging. There's no in-between. There's no cleansing and further purification. It's the ones that serve faithfully are rewarded, and others are judged. Just read it for yourself. Luke 12, starting around verse 40, 42, read it for yourself. It's just, it's one of these things, and, and you know, a, a way that, it's not an infallible way to, to judge doctrine, obviously, and it looks like we didn't get that third verse from, from Henry, but... Um, when I've read a passage for decades, and it's never once dawned on me reading the passage that it could have a particular meaning, and then someone says, well, "I think it means this," like, "What on earth are you talking about?" And then you look again, you look again, you look again. It's like, "You, can, it's just not what the text says. It's not there. It had to be read in. It had to be imported." Whereas there are other things like you read it's like, "I wonder what that means." Yeah, okay, does that say this or that? And these questions come up all the time. But the verses that are used to support purgatory, when I first heard them, after reading the scripture over and over and over and memorizing many of these passages over the years, and then heard it was used to support purgatory, I thought, what? No, it can't be. And found out, no, these are some of the key verses. Look, people say, well, well, was Jesus said he's going to build his his, his church on the rock. Is that Peter? Did he build it on Peter? You understand why people have that question. And the Catholics say Peter was the first pope. Okay, I understand. Here's why I differ, but I get that. I understand where you're coming from with that, right? Or arguments about is hell eternal conscious torment? Or is it perishing, being cut off? Okay, I, I see the verses. I, I see where you're getting it from. But the purgatory verse is like, mm-mm, it's just not there. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I, I dealt with... I dealt with uh, Matthew five twenty three through 26, dealt with that earlier. Yep. Luke 12, 42, 48. Yeah, so the, and, and Luke, I guess, is that 12, 58 to 59? Uh, let's just take a look because I didn't reference those. Luke 12, 58 to 59. Give me one second. You're going with yeah, yeah, so that's the parallel to Matthew five. That has to do with reconciliation with a person. That's all has to do with. I, I just encourage you, Henry. Step back, and read read the text and say, okay, what does it actually say? Forget what I've been told. that alludes to or hints at. What does it actually say? And then take in all the scriptures I gave you. The moment you're saved, you're pronounced clean. Here, have you made been made clean through the blood of Jesus, or not? Have you been justified by the blood of Jesus? Have you become a child of God by the blood of Jesus? Are you now seated in heavenly places with the Lord through the blood of Jesus? Are you now considered a child of God? Have you now been set apart as holy by the blood of Jesus? Can you now enter the most holy place through prayer by the blood of Jesus? Well, if, sir, so if you're in that spiritual fellowship now, why do you then have to be purged of sin later? Or, or pay, as, as the passages you're citing, pay the last penny. That's what you're going to do? You're going to pay for your sins in purgatory? I thought Jesus paid for your sins. Well, it's not about paying. Well, then don't quote those passages. Again, there are other doctrines like, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from on that. I, I get it. Yeah, so here's why I differ. Here's a different perspective. Look at certain messianic prophecies. Yeah, I see why you would say that's not messianic. Let me let me share you why I believe it is. And we go back and forth on certain points. But the purgatory verses just just not there. And if you say, well, it's hinted at, okay, well, then where is it taught where is it taught explicitly? When the opposite is taught explicitly, when the Bible tells us that at death you're with the Lord or you're not, that that at death you you are in his presence, presented as holy or not. Now, are we called to grow in holiness in this world? Yes. Are, are, are there consequences to our disobedience? Yes. And and that will affect us either in this world or the world to come. But the middle stage just isn't there in the Bible or whatever intermediate stage that you want to refer to. It's just not there in the Bible. Okay, we go back to the phones. Uh, let's go to Caleb in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Thanks for calling the line of fire and thanks for holding.
3: Hi, doctor. Yeah, I believe um, I believe you know your biblical response one hundred percent. My question is um, connecting this idea of purgatory with near death experiences, um, a lot of which I've seen from charismatic networks and so on, and the the more um, reliable ones where they're clinically dead, and um, some some you know their lives are totally changed and becoming Christians and some incredible witnesses and pastors and so on, who um, die as atheists or unbelievers. They're in hell, and then they cry out to to Jesus. He rescues them. Jesus takes them to heaven, and, um, you know, eventually they come back from the dead in the hospital setting, um, and they have this testimony. So my question is, could that not be seen as a form of purgatory? And if that if that is possible, the first few hours after death, to call out to Jesus in hell and him save them, could that not be possible a thousand years after death, a million years after death, you know, if a person comes to their senses, you know, in hell, being tormented, and going through fire or whatever? So that's my question. How do you connect it with
1: yeah, I appreciate, um, I appreciate the question. Yeah. Uh, n- number one, we never, ever, 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 ever base doctrine on someone's experience, your death experience, anything ever, 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 ever. Uh, and yeah, if you talk, if you talk to a thousand different people, you'll often have a thousand different experiences. Shall we believe those that died as non-believers and talk about entering into the light and so on, and the universal light and presence? The near-death experiences become interesting when the person is telling you what was happening outside of the room, when they tell you the family, yeah, I saw you, I was on the operating table and my spirit left my body and I saw all of you and, and you were so concerned and tells them what they were each wearing and what they snacks they were eating and, and things like that. And, um, so on that, that then provides verification of the existence of the human spirit. Um, right. But as to all of these accounts, every one of them that I've ever heard is the opposite of purgatory. It was God saying, this is where you're going unless you turn to me for salvation. And it was not that they were purged of sins. It was not that they were purified. It, and, and, and purgatory is not taught as a means for a rebellious sinner to, to have a, another opportunity after death, rather for someone that is not however you want to say it, righteous enough, clean enough uh, to go through this time of purification. So it's not even parallel to the Catholic doctrine. But in all the cases of people I've heard, if, if I was to take their stories as, as truthful, like Mickey Robinson, for example, who dies in a you know, plane wreck, right. fire and, and so on, God was showing him, okay, this is where you're going if I let you go now, but I'm willing to give you another chance in this body on the earth. And that's when they then make the decision. You know, Mickey Robinson then wakes up in his body in physical agony and then has to make the decision to follow Jesus. So, so even even though I know you would agree that we don't base doctrine on it, it's not even a parallel. It's not even a parallel. It's not even analogous. So thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And we've got time for one more. Uh, Adam in Boone, Iowa, over to you.
0: Hello, Dr. Brown. Hey, Okay, so Jesus says, behold, I have told you all
3: things, right? Okay. He also says, says, God is a spirit, and he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay,
3: we'll remember that. We'll go to the first book of of John, first chapter of John, sorry, Um, verses 3 through 5. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, that life was the light of man. That light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it or overpowered it, however you want to look at it. Okay. With that in mind, let's look at what one-third of our modern economy is made up of.
1: That- yeah. So, Adam, a little more integrity on your calls, okay? We told you that... Only calls relative to purgatory were being taken today. You called back and said, okay, you wanted to talk about purgatory. Only to get back to your original subject that we said was not for today. So that's a strike against you, buddy, for integrity. Come on, man. Just play by the rules, buddy. We have days and days and days, hundreds, thousands of days where people can call in and talk about any subject under the sun. And this day we say, calls related to purgatory only. You say, okay, call back and then try to trick us. Is that Christian? Come on, bud. Step higher. All right? If you want to get through again, step higher. So for everybody, hey, if you call and it's off subject, we tell you it's off subject. There are plenty of days. I'll talk about something for 10 or 15 minutes. And then say, okay, from here, anything goes. Anything you want to talk about. Do it on Fridays, Jewish-related subjects on Thursdays. So come on, play by the rules. Fair enough. So is purgatory biblical? Nope, not a chance. Be back in 15 minutes. 15 minutes for our YouTube chat, right on the Ask Dr. Brown, Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. I'll talk to you then, 4:15 Eastern Time.